Today's Global Kidney Care Podcast is hosted by Maria Diaz Gonzalez de Ferres, Professor, General of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and member of the ISN Education Working Group. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to talk with you today. My name is Maria Diaz Gonzalez de Ferres, and I am a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Um, but I also am part of the education working group of the International Society of Nephrology Academy of Education. Well, in today's program, I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Paul Green from Stanford. And um, before we get started, and I'm going to ask you, Paul, to please tell us your official title when you talk in your institution. But I want to tell everyone that Paul and I go way back um, in the day. And I always love asking Paul questions about his immigration from Canada to the U.S. because um, he was in a very cold place and he brought his family to San Diego. So, Paul, why don't you share that story with our audience? <laughs> I'll never live this one down. So, so uh, <clears throat> my first uh, job as a faculty member was at, at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and we were there for eight years and had two of our three children there. It was a great uh, first experience, and it was very supportive. But I was recruited to uh, San Diego, to UC San Diego. And so on the last day of January one year, we left uh, frigid Winnipeg, which was minus 40, and arrived in you know balmy san diego uh so and i think the weather was sort of 45 or something like that so the people from san diego our new neighbors as we moved into our rental you know they were bundled up nice and warm and you know this is cold and our kids uh when we arrived they the one was sort of first grade and one was three or four years old they tore off their clothes and they ran down the street half naked because it was so warm and so wonderful and they were happy and we just let them go and later on we were told that our neighbors after they met us but that day they were seriously considering calling child protective services because we were <laughs> child endangerment we were allowing these kids to freeze to death you know and so uh, that was our uh, introduction to the neighbors that we uh, then then lived with for the next few years <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that story. I always get a kick out of it when I hear it. So um, tell us, uh, Paul, tell us about your institution. Why um, why were you interested in visiting with us? We were excited to hear from you. But tell us first about your institution and how you got to where we are today. Sure. So um, my uh, I, I work at Stanford Medicine and specifically in the pediatric side at Stanford Medicine Ch Children's Health. And so we have a separate hospital uh, right next door to the adult hospital, and it's all under the umbrella of Stanford Medicine. I've been here since uh, 2007, so almost 16 years. And uh, um, I had quite a journey. You know, uh, I started off uh, as a rural family doctor in northern Saskatchewan, immediately out of medical school and a one year of internship. And after doing that for a while and delivering babies and doing pediatrics, I decided I wanted to do peds. So I trained in pediatrics and then I got fascinated with nephrology. So then I did 
some pediatric nephrology in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then I got interested in transplants. Then I did transplant training at UCLA. And then for my first job, I went back to Winnipeg and I went to San Diego. And finally, I found my home at Stanford. Uh, so here I am at Stanford Medicine for the last 16 years. I am so glad that uh, you have shared this this uh, career track for us because I hope that a lot of the trainees that are listening to this uh, podcast um, understand that a career is made over time and over certain experiences in a number of institutions uh, to bring us to where we are now. Yeah, and and you taking advantage of opportunities. And, you know, and I'm doing things that I would have never imagined I would have been doing when I was in my training. And I was just open to it. And, and my wife was enthusiastic about doing new and different things. And, and so here we are today. I would have never, never thought this was where I'd end up. But it's it's been a great ride. So before we dig, dig into this very important scientific content, tell me about your wife a little bit and what... She must have played a very important role in your career decisions and in your family changes. So uh, we met, she was a uh, nurse on the nephrology ward when I was a fellow. And so it was one of those sort of hospital romances. And at the time, uh, you know, children stayed in hospital a lot longer than they do today. So this was in the in the 80s. And so like teenagers might be in hospital a month or two as they were getting their training on peritoneal dialysis or AKI. And so like, you know, she'd be working a night shift and I'd be hanging around and the teenagers figured it out. They'd be looking at the two of us and guys are going out. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we thought we were very professional. It was very quiet, but you know, the teenagers could sort of sense or sniff that out. So the, these teenage patients knew. So anyway, uh, she had another passion, which was oncology. So she went off and did a master's and then a PhD. So now she's a nurse scientist uh, uh, in primarily in oncology, uh, looking at how people make decisions, uh, you know, how they uh, make decisions about, uh, do I go palliative? Or do I try an experimental thing? You know, and how teenagers make decisions. Okay, what's important to me? Staying in hospital for longer for more of a chance of cure or getting out and enjoying the time I have left and those kind of things. So, so she's got a very interesting job and career and stuff like that. And she's getting more involved in palliative care. So we have interesting dinner table conversations. Of course. But I want you to thank her and your children for allowing you to do the work you do, which is so important. I'm not surprised that adolescents figured out what you guys were up to. And um, (laughs) and a a shout to the adolescents, my favorite patients, adolescents and young adults. So, So now let's be a little more serious, audience. Sorry, we have to we have to ask Dr. Grimm why we're here. So Dr. Grimm, t- please tell us what is dual immune solid organ transplant or DISOT? And what is the benefit of the approach that you guys are proposing? Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> and, and this is sort of talking a little bit about history. You know, I've been uh, doing this for 30 years and uh, uh, every year, the outcome of kidney transplants, that's my, that's what I love. Every year, kidney transplantation gets a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. But in spite of the best of our abilities, the, you know, I, I th- think of it as a dirty, hairy situation. Do you feel lucky? You know, if a patient is lucky, uh, 
they can have a very long life with their transplants. You know, if they, you know, don't have a disease which comes back in the kidney, if they get a good living donor, if they have a stable family that can supervise their medication taking, if they make it through adolescence without too much non-adherence, you know, if they, if they make it through, uh, all the viruses that you can get and then the risk of cancer, which goes up year after year after year. So there's so much luck involved in who really has a, you know, a really good outcome with the transplant and who, unfortunately, the transplant is short-lived or fails. And so over the years, it's been one of those things that I've, you know, hoped that we can keep doing better and better at. So we uh, were looking after some patients who had a rare condition that was going to require a stem cell transplant in all probability and a kidney transplant. And this disease is called Schimke's uh, immunoosseous dystrophy. So it's a, a single gene defect of DNA repair. And these people have immunodeficiency and short stature. They develop FSGS um, and bone marrow failure. But the problem with them is they are immunodeficient. So, But if you do a kidney transplant without immunosuppression, they reject their kidney. And if you use regular immunosuppression, they have all sorts of side effects and complications. And there's a lot of cancer and a lot of graft-versus-host disease. And it's really problematic. So as we were talking with our bone marrow colleagues, we said, you know, if we have a living donor, we could do the stem cell transplant first. So correct their bone marrow failure, and that might help in other things. And then if we do the kidney from the same donor, they're going to have their parents' immune system. And they won't need immunosuppression. So if we did this twofer, first a stem cell transplant and then a kidney transplant, uh, they might be immunosuppression-free and and not have all the complications that these patients do uh, from immunosuppression. So immunosuppression, okay, fine. But then bone marrow transplants are scary. I'm a nephrologist, and whenever I get consulted to the bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant award, I'm thinking, oh, great. What a disaster is going to <laughs> yes. wait for me. Kidney failure, yes. complications. Yes. But uh, at Stanford Children's Health, uh, our head of the stem cell program, uh, Alice Bertena, she uh, came from the Bambino Jesu Hospital, Baby Jesus Hospital in Rome. And they had, uh, with her, they had been as a group pioneering the development of an engineered stem cell transplant. And okay. then when she came to Stanford a number of years ago, she brought that technology and she's uh, advanced it. And so with this engineered stem cell transplant, they get the stem cells in the morning from the parent and they remove the alpha beta T cells. And the alpha beta T cells are the cells that are most likely to cause graft versus host disease. And they remove the B cells, the CD19 cells, and they're the ones that carry EBV. And so primary EBV or recurrent EBV after a, a stem cell transplant gives you trouble with all sorts of EBV infection and PTLD, so they remove that. So they are giving an engineered stem cell product in the afternoon to these patients, and it really has reduced the risk of graft-versus-host disease uh, and the severity of graft-versus-host disease. So it changed the balance to where a stem cell transplant might be terrifying for most people and, and used only when absolutely necessary, to where a stem cell transplant may be something that we could think of incorporating in a planned approach in people that may need a stem cell transplant or could benefit one and a kidney transplant. So so our we had the first three patients were with Shimkeys and they they had the stem cell transplant from a parent and uh once they had fully recovered, uh they went on to get the kidney transplant from that same donor. 
Uh-huh. And we had planned to sort of do it at a sort of four or six months after the stem cell transplant. And, and the first one got delayed because of COVID. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But ultimately, these three had their kidney transplants and went on. And now, uh, two and a half to three years of follow-up later, their kidneys are working great. They have no rejection. They're on no immunosuppressive medication. All they were of off them? their... All three of them? All three of all them? Three, all three of them. They were off. We have put them on a little bit of tacrolimus and steroid for the first month post kidney mm-hmm. transplant. And that was it. And they've, they've really never looked back. And as we started seeing them in the clinic post kidney transplant, you know, we had our protocol, you see them twice a week for so long and then once a week for so long and all these labs, we started kind of feeling a little bit guilty because we would bring them to clinic as per our protocol, but we weren't doing anything. <laughs> We had no immunosuppressive drugs to manipulate. Right. They didn't have high blood pressure. They were healing so fast because they weren't immunosuppressed. Sure. Um, wow. And, and so we sort of really had to rethink our whole protocol and reduce how frequently we would be seeing them. Um, and we started getting really excited. This was, this was kind of cool and had potential. So we, um, we now have a, a clinical trial. Uh, where we have uh, potential uh, patients that we're, we're considering with from four main groups. One is the Shimkis, and we're getting calls from various places. One is FSGS, mm-hmm. and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis yes. is one, one of those diseases that, that uh, as a pediatric nephrologist, can be the most irritating and frustrating because also for adult nephrologists, which they yeah. see. That's right. Now yes, you know some for adult nephrologists. That's true. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely. So some FSGS is genetic and uh, we know won't recur, but the autoimmune kind of FSGS, you know, half of them recur. And if they recur in one kidney transplant, you know, we have good therapies: lipid phoresis, plasma phoresis anti-B cells, so we can treat some of them, but there's a hardcore of patients where they lose that first allograft Correct. from recurrent disease. Within hours sometimes of the transplant post-operatively, which is exactly. so dramatic and sad. Yeah, and it, you know the proteinuria comes on in that first urine, and sometimes the kidney mm-hmm. just shuts down and you can never patient, get it back. Yeah, on patients who had nephrectomies, right? We know is the donor kidney. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I do have several questions, and you gave us all kinds of terrific information, but I want to go back a little bit, if that's okay. I try mm-hmm. to be disciplined and not interrupt you, uncharacteristic of me. But uh-huh. <laughs> as, as you know, my ADHD, and this is the reason why I mute myself sometimes, to make me think twice before interrupting. <laughs> hint, hint, for those of you who have ADHD. I thought you were just having trouble with your microphone. <laughs> which I was earlier. But let me go back to the beginning. So I am very familiar with cell-based therapy, and I understand a little bit about um, how the process, et cetera. I am not as familiar with stem cell therapy in terms of safety. So could you tell us a little bit about the safety of, you know, what made you say, okay, this is safe enough? I want to try it in these patients. What evidence did you look at? Did you look at the bone marrow um, patients, pediatric patients? What was the what was the pushing moment that said, "Okay, I'm going to do this because I feel comfortable doing this. It's safe enough." What 
what made you think that? Sure. So as <clears throat> as a, someone that comes from a nephrology perspective and who is had has been sort of terrified whenever you get a consultation from the stem cell ward, what I had to reteach myself was there are many different kinds of stem cell transplants and the conditioning or the preparation for a stem cell transplant really varies based on the disease. You know, if you're having residual cancer, that you really want to wipe out, the conditioning is extremely aggressive and high risk. On the other hand, there are many diseases where you don't need to wipe out every last cancer cell. And a perfect example is people with marrow diseases like Fanconi's anemia or uh, 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 sickle cell disease or uh-huh. many of these hereditary diseases diseases where you don't need to be so aggressive with your conditioning. And so with less conditioning, there's mm-hmm. less inflammation, there's less tissue damage, mm-hmm. and it's potentially a lot less risky. So they had uh, a history of, of doing more than 75 stem cell transplants in people who had marrow diseases, so non-cancer marrow diseases. And in that history of doing more than 75 of these transplants, the the number of people who had any amount of graft-versus-host disease was really low. And people who did have graft-versus-host disease, it was usually just limited to the skin and and responded to a little puff of steroids, and that was all they Uh needed. Uh And in fact, one of the three Shimkes patients had a bit of skin graft-versus-host disease and was treated with some oral steroids and completely recovered. And so the belief that we had was that... uh, with this uh, sort of safer approach to stem cell transplantation with a gentle uh, conditioning and uh, and uh, reducing, really reducing the risk of graft-versus-host disease because you've removed the bad actors, those alpha-beta T-cells, we felt the balance of risk and benefits was ethically at the point where we had equipoise. Okay. We felt it was reasonable, and and we 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 had so many conversations with these families, multiple conversations to make really sure they knew what they were getting into and uh, uh, what potential risks there were and the benefits. You know, and when you have a a uh, uh, a standard approach. Um, which has a pretty good chance of success, at least for a while, you really have to explain and be very clear ethically to these families that we're trying something experimentally or something new. We don't know what's going to happen. And these are the, the risks as we know it. And then as we get more experience, we can refine that, that discussion. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a m- multiple visits. I, I get that. And this is, I'm glad that you brought something to my mind. Um, multiple discussions with the families. This is new therapy. Uh, this is actually heroic and a great pioneering therapy. I'm so excited to learn about this. But do you, and at your institution, when you're talking to families, parents, and patients, do you um, have a process where they sign? like an informed consent because this is new therapy or is this considered clinical care and you don't have to get IRB approval or ethics uh, committee approval? How do, how did you go about it at your institution? This is for the trainees. Sure. So uh, when you're doing something, uh, it's important to do uh, baby steps and feel 
that uh, you're just making a small incremental change with time. And so with the first uh, patients, uh, we found patients who had imminent bone marrow failure. So they clearly needed a stem cell transplant, and they were either close to dialysis or on dialysis, so they clearly needed a kidney transplant. Yes. So so this was a population of people who needed both, and then we could talk about the risks and benefits, and it was very reasonable just from the best clinical care perspective. Very but, but But as you start offering this therapy to a wider group of people, especially people who may not need a bone marrow tra- a stem cell. I keep saying bone marrow transplant. That shows my age. It's a stem cell transplant. Uh, so a wider group of people who may not need primarily a stem cell transplant, that's when it becomes more of an experimental thing and, and you have to have you know ethics involved and you have to have a very clear consent. Very well. And, and right now, with the clinical trial, it's it's been FDA approved, and uh, we uh, have detailed consent. And there's been an involvement by subspecialists, and there's a palliative care person who uh, sees every single one of these patients to try to get the full perspective. Are, are you is is uh, Stanford Children's the only institution that is doing this kind of protocol at the time, or are you collaborating with European countries or other countries? We're the only uh, institution that is doing this protocol right now. Uh, we hope to be able to, uh, once we have it more refined, we hope to be able to partner with other institutions. But right now, we are the only center that's doing it. Okay. There are two more things that I wanted to talk about, and I want to be mindful of our time. Um, but um, so many questions come to my mind. I wanted to uh, dwell a little bit on the no EV virus uh, transmission. Mm-hmm. Or um, so do you anticipate a decrease on post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease because you don't have this EV virus transmission? So the one, one of the uh, significant risks of the stem cell transplant process uh, is EBV. And so when you uh, do a uh, fully myeloblative stem cell transplant, you want to get rid of all the recipient immune system. There's a period of time when your T cells don't work very well at all. And if there's EBV, a significant EBV viral load, that can lead to proliferation, which is uncontrolled, and lead to a stem cell transplant-associated PTLD. And that's relatively early on. And so that is eliminated, hopefully, or really reduced by completely depleting the stem cell product of any B cells because the B cells are, you know, most of these donors, well, all of these donors have to be adults, right? And they almost all have had EBV during their lifetime and they've incorporated the EBV virus into their B cell genes, into their B cell nucleus. And mm-hmm. so some of those B cells get along, go along with this, with the stem cell transfusion they can set up a home and, and proliferate uncontrolled. So by really depleting the B cells, we hopefully reduce this. Now, the long-term issue that we think of in kidney transplant is is uh, is really, really important here. So we quote an incidence of 2 to 5% for the first couple of years following a kidney transplant. Just any old kidney transplant, what's your risk of PTLD? And of course, it's higher if you are, so many children are donor positive and recipient negative. Recipient negative, yeah. But there was a great paper from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto a couple of years ago. And in Ontario, Canada, 
the healthcare system is a single barrier healthcare system, so they can pe- follow people from birth to the grave. And what they showed was if you're a child who gets a solid organ transplant in Ontario and you're alive 25 years later, your risk of having a severe life-changing cancer like a PTLD or a solid cancer is 20%. And if you're alive at like 25 years, it's up to 25%. And other studies have, have agreed with this. And so living with chronic immunosuppression, day-to-day taking your tacrolimus or your Cellcept, it increases your risks long-term, as long as you're alive, of of cancer and other things. And it's simply because our immune system was designed to protect us from cancers, which form maybe every day, or viruses. And that same immune system is what rejects your kidney. And so we can't completely stop rejection because we would stop surveillance for cancers by the immune system or infections. So we live in this balance, this knife edge as clinicians. That is correct. Using our best judgment for how much immunosuppression this person needs or that person needs. And over time, that that takes its toll on the patients. Hopefully with this protocol, yes. if they're drug-free, they may not have all these problems in the long term. And that's what we're hoping for. Can you and, mm-hmm, go ahead? Well, I was going to say, and, you know, Dr. Ferris, you are an expert on adherence and transition. And just imagine, you don't have to worry about adherence in these patients because they don't need to take any medications. It's music to my ears. You'd be out Sorry. of a job. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be out of a job. Um, thank you for bringing a shout to my work. But I let me let me um, go back to um, I have a couple more questions, and then I want to make sure uh, your message is loud and clear to those of us I'm hearing today. Um, you said that you are going to be expanding it to patients, certain patients with FSGS. Um, and it makes sense um, to me. But I want to ask you about retransplantation. So once you expand to other diagnoses, so not just FSGS or or this very uh, unique uh, patients like Shinkies, once you have, I want you to tell me 10 years from now, I want you to tell me if all goes accordingly with uh, good safety and uh, a good safety profile, where... Do you see the expansion of this technique? And would patients that are retransplanted are would be candidates given the lifetime accumulation of immune suppression as you're bringing it up? Those are those are the million dollar questions. Absolutely. So I'll address retransplant first. So the FSGS patients, uh, we have one successfully transplanted now. Uh, the FSGS patients that we would take on in this protocol are all people who have lost their first graft due to recurrent disease. So we're, we're not going to, uh, uh, start with people who have at least a 50-50 chance of not having a recurrence. So these people have all lost their first graft. And we've successfully done this with one patient, and that was reported in um, an abstract at the last International Pediatric Nephrology Meeting in Calgary this uh, summer in 2022. Uh, yeah. So so these all are retransplanted. Uh, the other people that we are uh, targeting in this first phase are people with uh, cystinosis and people who have severe lupus with uh with uh with uh difficult or impossible to control complications of their lupus uh so that's the first group but we hope that as we learn more that people who have rejected a kidney 
could be potential candidates as well. Uh, once, um, one of the problems is if you're highly sensitized, having a high levels of donor specific antibody is very difficult to, to do a stem cell transplant in because the stem cells express HLA antigen and high levels of DSA may kill those stem cells and prevent them from engrafting. So then you'd have to incorporate desensitization on top. But I just want to take a minute. This is maybe the, the 15 year outlook. In many parts of the world, children who have end-stage kidney disease are not offered therapy because there are financial barriers. The families can't afford to care for a child who's going to grow up to be an adult who is forever dependent on technology, dialysis or transplant. There may be lots of willing donors, but they can't afford the surveillance and the immunosuppressive costs. But in those same parts of the world, more one-and-done procedures like short treatment of, le of leukemia or cleft palate surgery or things which are one-and-done, you can get the, you can find the funding for. So if we can figure out this protocol and get it right and get it safe so that it's shorter, closer, the l bare minimum that's needed, one-and-done, we might be able to actually get kids from many parts of the world who don't have this option actually transplanted from a living donor. And then if if they're not dependent on technology afterwards, it could be something that 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 would be achievable with through uh through funding mechanisms or or uh people donating or just the fact that that if you're not dependent on technology for your lifetime, their government might pay for it if we can get it into a commodity. And so that could really make a difference to a lot of people. So that's the long term. But we're in the very early steps. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Grimm, I, I, I just want to cry almost. Um, there, this is correct. I can name you and I know many countries, especially in America, Haiti, for example. Children are not offered in stage care. Um, and we have talked to our collaborators there and they've lost patients at 17 and a half years of age because they were not 18. And um I do hope that we find, um, uh, maybe not in my lifetime, but in the in the in the near future, the opportunity to offer better care for adolescents, children, adolescents, and young adults with end stage kidney disease. Thank you for a high note to finish on this, but I would like to. Um, I want you to tell us about your website. Um, if listeners are interested in contacting you, how do we go about it? And some final words. Uh, you've inspired me, Paul Green, personally, before um, you finish your discussion. But I want to tell you how much I respect you. And you, in my mind, are a hero and a pioneer and a, and a brave man. I'm going to embarrass you, and um, but it is such an honor to get this podcast with you and to get to know you uh, from that from that perspective. Thank you. Wow, that that's that's wonderful to uh, to uh, for you those such kind words. So, like uh, <clears throat> at at my hospital at Stanford Medicine, you know, we are uh, we're lucky. I, I'm very lucky that we have the support to try new things and to sort of. You know, push the boundaries and and you know get into the cutting edge, which can be the bleeding edge, uh, and and we're really supported at this place. This is a 
research institution and and they put their money where their mouth is. Paul, thank you for telling me all these interesting points, but I'm very curious. Why Stanford Medicine Children's Health? Why not elsewhere? What were the steps? What were the things that happened to make this succeed? So um, when I came here, I had worked in a, a lot of different hospitals. One thing that's really really stands out in my experience is how open this place is to research and how the barriers are 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 moved away um the hospital uh supports financially lots of research grants the maternal child health uh program is supported by the hospital uh, along with other donations and and dr leonard our department chair she uh that she was absolutely clear when she came in that uh that one of the one of the things as part of her coming on board was that the hospital had to commit to long-term support for research so there's lots of grants for different people there's grants for for uh physicians there's grants for uh, clinicians there's grants for nurses to do research so this is like a research intensive place but in addition there's a real sense of collaboration like to get this to happen we have to be friendly with our stem cell colleagues and collaborate with them and have to get buy-in from our dialysis unit because these people are sick at the time of their stem cell transplant and put a lot of demands on our dialysis unit coming in with their a game and our transplant surgeons being willing to sort of keep these people uh, uh prepared for transplant and willing to try new protocols and uh, do some 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 novel work on the on these patients the donors and recipients so it takes all this friendly interactions and and real collaboration from stem cell nephrology dialysis this transplant surgeons the hospital to make it happen or irb it all has to work and i'm really grateful to be here amazing an amazing team with a terrific uh, uh leader in that department of pediatrics dr leonard um you i want to tell you what you did for me so for those of you who are young in the audience dr green mentioned um an actor that um uh, that has a very interesting uh, saying in his movie go ahead make my day uh, <laughs> and you mentioned him and uh i want to tell you that you not only made my day but you made probably my millennium to quote another movie called little juice but anyways <laughs> 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 I, I love movies. My son, my oldest son, Ted Ferris, is a big movie fan, and, and my children are movie fans. And so they, they're teaching me well. And one last comment. They they actually know the kinds of movies that I like. So they go to the PG-13 directory, and they'll tell me, Mom, this is not a good movie for you. You cannot watch violence. But So they're my parents when it comes to movie recommendations. I'm going to stop and be serious. I would like to take an opportunity to thank Stanford Medicine Children's Health for this terrific program and for hosting Dr. Paul Green and supporting him in his terrific work. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, thank you for this wonder. This is a lot of fun today and really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, audience. Take care.